Welcome back to another episode of What a Week. We are fresh off of an absence last week. We had to cancel uh, due to unforeseen circumstances, but we're back now ready to tackle this. I have a really exciting close read to do today that Andrew found, sent to me, really enjoyed it. Andrew, you look bundled up there in North Texas, which is surprising because it's North Texas, but uh, how are you doing today? I'm well. It's a beautiful day here, Zach, but I don't take well to the cold. So yeah, I'm all bundled up and, uh, you know, just trying yeah. to stay warm. How about you? Well, I do love a good, a good sweater in, uh, in November or December time. So it, you're looking good. You're looking very, uh, looking very sort of Oxford Donish today. Oh, well, thank you. Well, you look, yes. you look well yourself to, to those who are thank just you. listening and not watching. You have a, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you have a very, a very nice, a nice shirt on today, Zach. So thank you very much. Thank you. Watching appreciates it. How are your book projects coming, Andrew? They're coming along. I'm finishing one of them uh, in the next two, th two to three weeks or so. That's the one that I'm collaborating. Uh, it's a collaboration with two other authors where we are writing about all of the films on the Vatican film list, which is a, um, a list that came out. We talked about it before, I know, in a yeah. previous podcast. So yeah, I have two chapters left to write and I have until uh, like mid-December, first into the first week of December, I'm, I'm shooting to get those done. So that's that's foremost on my mind right now. It's going pretty well, um, but yeah, and the other one's just kind of on the back burner until I get uh, till I get this one done. But I'm really excited for this first one to get done and then come out hopefully next year. I think it should be a really nice book for people to buy. This is a completely random question, but have you ever tried your hand at writing fiction? And if so, how did that go? Oh, a little bit here and there. I don't think I'm that gifted at it though, Zach. I I don't okay. know. I've thought about revisiting it. But what about you? Have you uh, written? Uh, I, I can't really say meaningfully. I mean, here and there, I've maybe I've, I've tried a thing or two, but um, I have this desire to write fiction that I've never, yeah. I mean, you know, I guess people can desire things all the time. And if they don't actually try to do it, it's sort of empty words, but I do have a desire to write fiction. I have a desire to write screenplays. I have a couple of novel ideas in my head. I don't know how novel these novel ideas are, but I have a couple of them in my head. Uh, and so, yeah, I definitely have a desire to do so. I was going to pick your brain on sort of how to go about starting that, because if I can find the time, I want to try to put pen and paper at some point in the next year, probably, and try to get one of these ideas that's in my head out on paper. Uh, so I was gonna, I was gonna ask your advice if so, but I'm not the best person to ask. I, I dabble here and there at it, and I have, like you, been thinking maybe it's time to explore it a little more seriously. Uh, maybe because I don't know, I just sort of have begun feeling like there's no other way for me to process all the weirdness of the world than than through than through fiction. But um, I don't know. I've always kind of liked the nonfiction. Uh, genre for my own for my own expression. I've just always loved the essay and kind of the, you know, I, I like writing about topics and that kind of thing. Maybe that's just my my lot is to just kind of comment on other people's brilliance. I don't know. Well, like you, I am motivated by a desire to sort of process things, but also help others process. I think I've become more appreciative of fiction as I've been a father and have read a lot of fiction stories to my kids. I was just reflecting the other day about how the fiction fiction uh, universes give give us sort of a schema to evaluate reality in our own and how I mean we've talked previously about the importance of heroes and I think we'll talk about this probably in the close read today but how we sort of construct these ideas uh, of what a human being should be based on archetypes that we build in our minds from the stories that we hear and sort of are immersed in even from a very or probably especially from an early age so to me that's that becomes the value of fiction my wife and I were also talking today about the value of a of a real good detective story. I think one of my recommendations on the on a previous 
episode. If it wasn't, it probably should have been, but the Corman Strike Detective Series by J.K. Rowling. Did we talk about this already? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, I was just reflecting on that. I I absolutely love that series. I just finished the most recent one. It was a thousand plus page book, but it's just so gripping. It was a real page turner in ways that, that very few books these days that I read are. And I think one of the, you could say the same for the Harry Potter books or this other series of like the, the Harry Bosch series. What, what a good fiction series does well is it creates, it creates a universe that sort of draws you in, a cast of characters that become familiar to you. You know, the, 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 um, that cast of characters is always sort of wrestling with problems that if they're not real because they're actually fictional are certainly mirrored in the real world. And so the value of creating that universe then is that you understand the own, your, your own world around you better. I mean, people who, people who think that fiction is simply an escape from the real world, I think, have it wrong. Fiction mm-hmm. is sort of key to fully understanding the real world, to, to actually being fully immersed in the real world and being able to process it. So um, it's, yeah, for all those reasons that I really, I really want to try my hand at fiction. I'd probably be bad at it, but you know, I guess I'd have to try first to be able to say that definitively. So you seem like somebody who, you know, who, who achieves excellence. So you probably will do a good job at it. So you should give it a try. Um, but you know what I was thinking, Zach, just, uh, maybe to, we'll, we'll talk about this more in the close read, but you know, it's a big, a big thing that I believe that I think we, we share is, that really everything begins with culture, like, you know, politics is downstream of culture. I mean, everything, everything is about f- culture first in a sense. Right. And so I was just thinking about this because I'm reviewing this movie called The Wonder that just came out yesterday, um, directed by Sebastian Lelio. It's about this English nurse who goes to Ireland in the 19th century and is tasked to take care of this girl who has apparently not eaten for months. And it's supposed to be like this, this miracle, like this sort of Eucharistic wow. miracle kind of. And this guy, Sebastian Lelio, has made these like very provocative movies about various controversial topics in the past. And um, but one of the things that comes through in the movie at the very beginning is like they break the fourth wall right at the beginning of the movie. And the and there's a narrator that says something like, you know, everything is story. Like we invite you to believe this story that we're about to tell. Right. Um, and um, I have like a complicated view of where what they what they, I mean, I think ultimately where they're landing is like everything is story in the sense of like religion is story, science is story, like in a sense, like it's kind of relativizing truth to some degree, but something that I've noticed about this filmmaker, and I'm going to put this in the review that I'm writing up for the um, Catholic Herald is that it, it really is, it really is a kind of um, way of not only describing reality, but prescribing reality, like to write a story then, and to put it out into the world is to say, I want to create a certain thing in the culture. Like I want to Mm. shape the culture. I want to, you know, right. So it's almost like a kind of evangelism, right? Like to, to, to tell a story and then to put it out in the world. And in this director's case, it's kind of not exactly working to the purposes that maybe you and I would, would want to see achieved. Um, which, which just kind of goes to show the power of a story that maybe you or not, you or I might like to tell, like might actually have the power to, to sort of create something for, for future, for the future, you know? Um, yes. so yeah, anyway, just popped into my head as we were thinking that. So would you recommend that we see this film or no? I, it's, it's hard for me to say. I think that I, I enjoyed it. Okay. It stars Florence Pugh. Do you know her? She's been in a, a few things yes. lately. Uh, she was I, in the black widow definitely seen her. Marvel movie. As she was in little Women. superhero. Yeah, yeah. 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 I am. I am not. I'm kind of underwhelmed by her, to be honest. She has okay. a little bit of a physical resemblance to me of of um, Kate Winslet, 
and she's a lot younger. I can see that, she's yeah. a very young actress. Um, and she really loves Kate Winslet. And I can kind of see that physical resemblance, but she's kind of, I hate to say it, but kind of like a, a more boring, younger version of Kate Winslet to me. And most of the cast in this film was was not exactly fantastic. The, the, the actress who played the little girl was terrific. I really, really liked her. Okay. Um, but yeah, the movie, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of a mystery, so it does kind of grip you like, is this real? What's going on here? And that kind of thing. Um, I think the ending is a little bit of a nod to the dictatorship of relativism, frankly. Um, you know, so in a, in a, I, I don't in a good think way or a bad way, kind of, the... no, in a bad way. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> in, in, a, in a sense that like maybe the dictatorship of relativism is kind of a good thing. Um, ah. I, I don't know. I might be wrong about that, but I, I'm still processing my thoughts. I need to get this review done by tomorrow. So I gotta, I gotta figure out exactly what I think, but Anyway, it really, but I would recommend it just in the sense, like if you're thinking along the lines that you, as you and I are talking, whether you sort of agree with the movie or not, it really does engage this idea of the power of story, you know, mm -hmm. and of like the power of like gripping the imagination with something that you believe to be true. Yeah. Okay. Well, definitely. I, I, it sounds like I should check it out. So, uh, I think I will. Um, did you, uh, since you are doing a review about it and just came out, did you get a, an advanced screener and got to attend that or just no watch watch it streaming or something like that yeah i just watched it with with everybody else you know it's funny like i do get advanced things sometimes i get i get to watch advanced copies of certain things but you know nowadays it is not as common as it used to be that um people even who even people who review movies for a living necessarily get to watch everything well in advance um yeah you'll notice this even in like mainstream media like oftentimes the reviews aren't early they're just right. you know basically in a, yeah, a day or two after the movies come out. Um, I mean, I remember so even growing up when all the movies were coming out, there would be the, you know, day, I think with, they, they normally come out on a Thursday, right? And so like the Wednesday before, there would be a review. And sometimes yeah. even I think in the Sunday papers before. So it seems like for every every release, there used to be a review ahead of time and you could read it and get excited about it. I think that that's just sort of dying now. Now we're just sort of caught up in the cult of the now. So we can't really think more than 24 hours ahead. So there's no point in reading a review of a movie that's coming out later that week. Yeah, there still is some of that, but um, especially smaller movies and movies that they really want people in the media to see. I very often will get emails like offering to let me watch movies that, you know, by directors I've never heard of or that aren't going to be released widely in theatrical yeah. things. A lot of like Christian movies, stuff like that, like stuff that they sort of want to fit into a niche, like to really appeal sure. to a niche market. Um so yeah, sometimes, but, but this, in this one, and a lot of the ones I've been looking at lately, I just watch, you know, along with everybody else when they come yeah. out. Makes sense. Um, I've been watching a quiet place too, while I, uh, we have a, we have a rowing machine. So I use that to work out and I have a little clip on it so I can put my iPad there and just watch something. I've been watching a quiet place too. I was underwhelmed by a quiet place. The first one, mm -hmm. which I know people loved. And so I'm sort of a contrarian in the fact that I'm fairly anti quiet place one. Uh, I have to say I'm even more anti-Quiet Place 2. I just find it to be boring, pretty droll, and inspired. Uh, even the, you know, it's supposed to be a thriller, and even the even the, the the sequences of of scare are not overwhelming at all. They're just I just find yeah. it pretty flat throughout. So I don't know if you've seen it, but I would not really recommend it. It's pretty boring. I have not, and I slept through most of uh, A Quiet Place 1. So I, I've had, I really am not, I'm not in the know about that, yeah. about those two movies. It sounds like you then potentially agree with me then if you, if you found a quiet place one pretty uninspired as well. I don't, I, you know, I know this is heresy, but I don't really like that guy very much. The actor, John Krasinski, um, John Krasinski. I think he's okay. You don't like Jim from okay. the office. <laughs> 
I think he's fine on that. Yeah. But I mean, that's the way I think of him. He's not, he's not a Harrison Ford type leading man, which is the way that I think people kind of want us to think of him yeah, nowadays. Um, yeah. He just doesn't kind of do it. He doesn't do it for me. I mean, this is, um, uh, yeah. I mean, I agree with you there. I actually don't think he's that good of an actor in general. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not yeah. a huge John Krasinski fan. Um, I do think Emily Blunt's a very good actress. Yes, uh, she's good. So I yeah. think her performance is better in the first one and in the second. Um, but yeah, wouldn't really recommend the second if you haven't already seen it. So. Well, that's it enough movie like, talk. I mean, oh, sorry. Yeah. No, go ahead. No, that, no, no. Last thing I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, you know what? Well, I was going to say was that those that first movie seemed to me like it was uh, like it was a new M. Night Shyamalan movie. Like that's yes. the trailer. That's what it looked like yes. to me. And I, I'm so over M. Night Shyamalan that I, I was just sort of like, yeah, I don't know. And then it turned out it wasn't an M. Night Shyamalan movie, but it still kind of seemed like one. So I anyway. think I think that M. Night Shyamalan's only good movies may have been Signs and The Sixth Sense. I think. And maybe you could maybe add Unbreakable to that. I think everything yeah. after that, not good. Yeah, I, I would argue even Signs in some respects. I mean, it has so much going for it because it has really great actors in it. Yeah. Mel Gibson and Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. I really, that movie kind of has meant something to me for a bunch of reasons, actually. But uh, when I think of the ending of that movie, I think, man, that's pretty bad, actually. Which, but, which part the, like the whole inhaler part and the, the swing away attack. thing, you know, the yeah, whole, the yeah. whole, like smashing the glass. I, I don't, I don't, sorry, spoiler for people who haven't seen it, but I yeah. agree. Sixth Sense is a truly great movie. I love yes. the Sixth Sense. I will always love that movie. Have you seen old by M night Shyamalan? It's one of his newer no, ones. I think it came out two I years ago. I have not seen that one. Have you? It is atrociously bad. Yikes. It is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. I watched it, I don't know, probably six months ago, maybe less than six months ago. Uh, it was on HBO Max. And I was like, oh, it's M. Night Shyamalan. Like, maybe he's got his mojo back. Let's see. Turned it on. Watched a little bit of it. The acting was just atrocious. And so I ended up basically fast forwarding for much of the movie and doing some internet research on it. And people are just like, what is going on with this With this one? There's this, uh, yeah, there's this one scene that's particularly bad. And I looked it up. And several other people on Reddit had, had basically said, I got to the same scene. And then looked up what was going on because it was so bad. And I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, it's almost worth it for the laughs because it's so atrociously bad. But I just wonder how, how did the sixth sense guy fall this far? It's really, really sad, mm-hmm. actually. Terrible. But anyway, we've got Thanksgiving next week, Andrew. So I'm going to segue to our misinformation segment. And I've prepped some misinformation things along the theme of food this week. So we have three food themed items. They're not in a, they're not, they're not necessarily super contemporaneous because I wanted to find food things, but they're all themed with food. Uh, and so you will have to choose which one is the false of these three articles. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay. Uh, item one from Bon Appetit magazine. Are you familiar with Bon Appetit magazine? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I love Bon Appetit or loved Bon Appetit. I used to uh, get my wife's gift subscriptions for her birthday, just like an annual subscription because they were a really cool magazine. They still are around, but um, there was a whole controversy with their editor-in-chief, Adam Rappaport, who was just, a, he had a really good podcast presence. We listened to his podcast pretty frequently. He appeared on the Bill Simmons podcast a lot. And then there was some kind of controversy where I think he had worn, um, I think the the technical term is not blackface. I think it's actually brownface because he had he had darkened his face to dress up as a Puerto Rican celebrity, I think, for a Halloween party. And so this picture leaked online several years ago, and then that was followed up by his staff basically saying, oh, he's creating a toxic work environment and he's a bully, et cetera, et cetera. So he just he resigned suddenly 
uh, the staff of the magazine changed overnight. The podcast, he was, he was like the face of the podcast. So the podcast changed overnight. It was, it was remarkable, complete, uh, complete, you know, facelift for the publication. And I sort of have my, my interest sort of in parallel, not because of that, but sort of just naturally drifted away anyway. So I hadn't read the magazine in a while, but it's a very different magazine than it, than it once was, at least, uh, I know that hmm. for better or worse. I'm not, I'm not, since I haven't read it, I can't really make a judgment either way, but it was a sad a sad end to, uh, to a great thing they had going there, uh, content wise, but here we go. So if true, this is from Bon Appetit magazine, the title is Hong Kong restaurant dives into aerial dining. Okay. Excerpt from the story. You may be familiar with unique sensory dining experiences. Some restaurants in Paris, for example, serve meals in complete darkness. Servers wear night vision goggles while restaurant patrons experience the heightened sensate pleasures of their taste buds. You may also be familiar with aerial yoga in which yoga instructors lead their pupils in dervish-like displays of acrobatic finesse, all while suspended above ground by thick bands attached to stealing hooks. A Hong Kong restaurant inspired by these examples is offering diners an opportunity to experience the best or worst of these worlds, eating your meal while suspended above the ground in a room completely sealed off from the light. How will it work? Details are scant, but we took the opportunity to speak with two people who recently dined there. It was, in their words, an unbelievable experience. I'll stop there. Okay, that's item mm, one. Any okay. questions on item one? A restaurant where people eat suspended from the <laughs> ceiling in the dark. In pitch blackness, yes. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. All right, item two. Florida Travel, uh, sorry, from CBS News, if true. Florida Traveler tried to smuggle gun onto the plane by stuffing it in raw chicken. Here's an excerpt, if true. A prospective air traveler was roasted by the Transportation Security Administration on social media on Monday after officers with the federal agency said it caught the person trying to conceal a gun inside a raw chicken stashed in their carry-on luggage. The weapon was flagged by TSA at Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport in Florida, where officers found it wrapped in what looked like thin paper packaging and hidden inside a raw chicken. A post shared to the official TSA Instagram account on Monday included photos of the uncooked bird being examined in an airport security screening area and the gun once it was removed and unwrapped. Its caption leaned heavily into Thanksgiving-themed puns, starting with, there's a personal foul here, dot, dot, dot. Uh, All right, any questions okay. on that? I don't think you're allowed to bring chickens through uh, on, in your carry-on baggage either. Yeah, so sort, that's sort of a double, a double foul double there. Fault. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. And Foul, yeah. the third one, if true, this is from the, thr uh, not the, sorry, just Thrillist, Thrillist.com. If true, couple sells secrets to China, hides them in a peanut butter sandwich. Here's the excerpt of true. What do espionage and a peanut butter sandwich have in common? A Maryland couple who thought they could outsmart the U.S. government, apparently. According to the United States Department of Justice, Jonathan Teb allegedly tried to sell information about our nuclear-powered submarines to a foreign government. In his first attempt, he used half of a peanut butter sandwich, and then another attempt to pass the information on, Teb used a chewing gum package. He served as a nuclear engineer for the United States Navy and was assigned to the Naval Nuclear Propulsion Program, also known as Naval Reactors. According to the U.S. Department of Justice, Teb held an active national security clearance through the U.S. Department of Defense, giving him access to restricted data. All right, so that is the third item. Which of these is the decoy which of these is not true andrew so let me get the let me get this third one straight so it's like the guy works in this lab and he he had a sandwich and he just like wrote down some stuff and stuck it into a sandwich or something and then took it out 
So if true, this would actually be uh, in the 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 terminology would be the drop, right? This like the mm -hmm. the handoff, the secret location for the handoff. You stash something somewhere, and your handler okay. comes and picks it up later. If true, he took a USB stick full of secrets, put it in half a peanut butter sandwich, and used that to sneak it to the drop. As the drop, okay. Oh, that's that's yeah. funny. That I would even imagine it's like something written down. You know, yeah, of course, right. It's that's like way too old school. File. Yeah. I yeah. know, man. I'm so. What are pencils and pens? What? What? Yeah, they probably don't have those at the nuclear lab or whatever. Probably okay. not. Okay. Um, I'm gonna say. Let's start with the second one. It was a Florida man story, so I'm gonna say that that's true. That uh, a Florida man would would think, how can I get this gun through security? I know, I'll stick it in a chicken. So let's start there. Number two is true. Number two is true. I was hoping you would fall for it because uh, I thought that they were leaning a little bit too hard on the puns, and I thought, yeah. Zach's, Zach's, you know, had fun writing this. He's leaning too hard into the puns, but it is actually true. The puns are all correct. Uh, not, I mean, not correct. It's, how can a pun be correct? The puns are all, all, all true to the story. Really printed. They were in the story. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So there you go. Well, yeah. Florida man. I, I, I think they did miss an opportunity there because they said Florida traveler and they really should oh, have yeah. led with Florida man sticks gun and chicken tries to smuggle it through security. Yeah. Zach, I think it's all part of the new woke regime. We don't say Florida man. You can't. Eat, I mean, even like That's the true. old tropes, Florida man. Yeah. You know, who's to say? Did he identify? You don't as a man? assume. Yeah. I mean, but for that matter, know. does he identify as a traveler? You know, I don't. Who can? You right. Know, it's, it's rather rather violent of them to assume that he identifies as a traveler. So. Yeah. Florida entity. We really perhaps. opened up a can of worms there, but yeah, Florida, something. All right. So that one's true. All right. I'm gonna say. I'm going to say that the, I don't know, the, the, the other two are tough. The other two are tough. I'm inclined, I'm inclined to say the third one is made up, uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go against my instincts here and say the third one is true and the first one is made up, not because there isn't something interesting, some weird way to eat in Hong Kong that's just come out, but that eating upside down and in the dark seems like maybe you, maybe you added one too many wrinkle there. To, to try and draw me in. So I'm going to say one is false, three is true. You're, you're on quite a winning streak here, Andrew, because that is exactly correct. Yes. Number one is false, number three is true. I did think it was maybe a bridge too far, but I, I wanted to make it as ridiculous as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and this idea of a restaurant just trying to go so avant-garde that they turn off all the lights and suspend their dining patrons in midair in you know awkward aerial yoga style poses while they shovel food into their mouths is just a little bit too delicious to pass up. So uh, I don't even really know the inspiration for that. Uh, yeah. So I can't really speak to why I came up with that, but I thought it was a funny, you, you a made idea. all of that up the entire yes. story. You just cooked it <laughs> yes. up from nothing. Wow. Yes. Bravo, Zach. Well the entire done. thing is fake. Um, yeah. And the, the spy thing is true. That is not very contemporary. I mean, it happened this year or I think it happened last year, but the DOJ came out with this earlier in the year. Uh, but I came across it when I was looking for, you know, funny, crazy food stories. So, um, so there you go. Yes, they actually did try to use they being the couple. Um, uh, and I guess he was the engineer. So I think he was the one who actually smuggled the sandwich, but yeah, they stuck a, stuck a stick drive into half a peanut butter sandwich and tried to pass it off to their Chinese handler that way. So there you go, man, the, yeah. the, the days of cloak and dagger are, are not dead and not at all. No, not at wow. all. Just got to watch out for the peanut butter sandwich. Yeah, um, yeah there's some, there, I don't know, there's probably some joke there about how the, I don't know, the DOJ was stuck on him like peanut butter and on bread or something <laughs> like that. I don't know. Um, but there you go. Well done on the misinformation segment, Andrew. Should we go ahead to the close read for the week?
Let's do it. All right, I'm going to hand this over to you to do a, a walkthrough, but this is uh, this is appearing in the European Conservative, linked in the show notes, of course, europeanconservative.com. Uh, the title is Breakthrough, an interview with Ben de Villiers, if I've pronounced that remotely correctly. Um, so this is an interview where the writer, um, Mario Lagos, I think is the writer, uh, mm -hmm. sits down with this sculptor and asks him about his crafts, uh, where his inspiration comes from, um, his, uh, his training uh, with the Vortices School of Art, which I didn't know a lot about. Andrew, it was an opportunity for me to read up on that a little bit as well, research more about vorticism. Uh, yeah. and, and sort of his diagnostics of the problems of today. So over to you, Andrew, for more on what's going on with this interview. There's a lot, there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, this is a great interview. I really enjoyed reading it. I don't know how I stumbled upon it. It was in the European Conservative, which is uh, doing a lot of interesting stuff, publishing a lot of interesting work. And uh, yeah, it's an interview between uh, this writer, Mario Lagos, and an artist named Fen de Villiers, F-E-N-D-E-V-I-L-L-I-E-R-S, Fen de Villiers. And he is based in Belgium now, but he grew up in the UK. His uh, website says he grew up in Scotland, but his his accent is the King's English. I mean, it's it's a really, really nicely, um, you know, nicely polished English accent. And I really enjoyed uh, looking at some of his videos on YouTube and kind of exploring and, and learning a little bit more about what he does. But yeah, he's a sculptor. He's a young man who is a sculptor. He sculpts out of stone, you know, um, and uh, he he creates these these really interesting pieces. Um, the the interview begins with um, Mario Lagos talking about the state of contemporary art, which is something we've talked about before. And this also you know this ties up with what we were what I said a moment ago about culture being sort of culture comes first, right? So we've got this like really impoverished state of creation going on in the art world, at least in kind of the traditional art world of painting and sculpture. Um, architecture, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, the, the writer Mario Lagos begins by asking, is there anything so boring as contemporary art, which I think is the right, the right question. It's not that it's so shocking or so scandalous or so, you know, uh, I don't know, weird even it's just kind of boring. Right. And, you know, um, he uses the example here of, um, someone selling an Italian artist named Salvatore Garo selling nothing, selling an, a quote, invisible sculpture, for uh, the sum of eighteen thousand three hundred dollars, and we can think of that was hilarious. You know, things, yeah, right. That was you bought that nothing. was so funny. What a what a revelation! I mean, it's like talk about the emperor's new clothes, right? Like, yeah. I mean, wow, crazy. But you know, that's just kind of the the most extreme example. But the the only less extreme examples are things like Tracy Eamon's bed and. You know, going all the way back to the 19 teens, Marcel Duchamp's urinal, which was, you know, this this piece of art that uh, kind of shocked the world. So, you know, so that we, we're all accustomed to this. And certainly with regard to like public art, you know, like on the the empty plinth in um, Trafalgar Square in London, it has these these majestic lions on it. And they just put something on one of the empty ones, which is like this giant ice cream cone that's being attacked by a drone. You know, I mean, just crazy, right? Outside the National Gallery, there is there are Leonardo da Vinci paintings past the threshold of that of that wall in that building, right? But you have this ice cream cone on a plinth. So anyway, the the point at the beginning of the of the article here is that it's an act of rebellion to create something other than the kind of boring, 
um, postmodernist art. And somebody who is doing that very thing is this guy, Fen de Villiers, who is, who is a sculptor. And he is a really fascinating guy who obviously has a very strong perspective on, on art and on what he's doing. And in fact, Zach, I also read, I printed it out and here it is, his manifesto, which you can find on his website. He's got a kind of manifesto for, um, for what a new generation of artists ought to be doing. Um, so maybe we can get into that a little bit, but it's, it wasn't directly in the, the, um, the article from the European conservative, but I, I found it on the website. So pretty interesting stuff, you know, it definitely a passionate thing, a young man's thing, but that's not such a bad thing at the moment. I think maybe we need some some passion for uh, more traditional forms of art. And, you know, he talks about the process in the, in the interview here of actually like making something out of stone. Like, I don't know if, I don't know about you, Zach, but I, I just really can't imagine like being faced with a giant block of stone and then turning it into something where like some like beautiful human energy can kind of, you know, radiate out from it. Um, there's a great movie, by the way, by Andrei Konchalovsky called Sin, which is about Leonardo da Vinci, I mean, Leonardo da Vinci, about Michelangelo, the great Michelangelo. And yes. it's about this very topic as well. It's like about the way Michelangelo sort of made stone come alive. Like and, David, um, right? His, his famous Yeah, David like his statue. David and, and lots of his other statues. Yeah, but David is maybe the most famous where that happens. But Anyway, I digress. But Finn, Finn, uh, Finn de, de Villiers is involved in this same work. And um, he talks about wrestling with the stone in this physical way, which also- Yeah, he does say you have to be pretty the, strong to do it, which I mean, completely makes sense. I've never really thought about that, that a sculptor needs to actually have physical strength. But but yeah, you think about this giant rock or this giant, uh, giant block of bronze. I mean, it's going to take some power to be able to sculpt that. It was really amazing to think about. Yeah. And to be able to kind of like, you know, contort it and like, you yeah. know, to kind of like dominate it, right? Like you, it, the stone has to become yours. Like it, it isn't just you kind of chipping away and making some little thing, right? I just thought the way that he talked in the interview about the process of actually engaging with the physical object was such a refreshing thing. Like in this world of abstraction, um, to just imagine that make like making something that's something we've talked yeah. about before but like that you know that process of like the physical process of like creating something and and funnily enough what comes through is something very soulful in fact much more soulful than something where you wouldn't have that physical uh physical process going on so anyway yeah he gets into that a little bit like this momentum and this energy this movement that he yeah. is sort of looking for when he when he sculpts i thought that that was very compelling as you said, he gets into his influences a little bit. One of them is this vorticist movement, which kind of petered out um, before World War II. But it was the the brainchild, sort of, or or the the product of the thought of um, this one man, Wyndham Lewis, in particular, this this British artist who was good friends with Ezra Pound, uh, the poet, the modernist poet. Mm -hmm. And um, he knew T. S. Eliot. He knew a lot of the kind of people who are hanging out in the British modernist circle. Um, and the, the, the word vorticist comes from the word vortex. And, um, if you look up vorticism, I mean, the whole idea was that it's supposed to be like within the vortex, like within this sort of like swirling chaos, there emerge patterns, you know, and this is something that is like very important to modernists. And by the way, I'll just like quickly, I know I'm, I'm, I'm sort of going on and on here, but I'll just quickly editorialize for a second and say, one of the things that I really like about Fenn de Villiers perspective on the art that he's creating 
is that he has a fondness for modernism and that he believes in a fact in, in fact that like something happened to modernism because of the world wars where it it kind of got interrupted and postmodernism sort of replaced it but that really there's a lot of ground still to be still to be kind of walked through with modernism and i i'm very sympathetic to that view i frankly like modernism i i do and i i i really i sort of like laugh but also resent the use of the word modernism especially in more traditionalist circles to be a kind of epithet to be a, a, a dirty word you know like you'll see sometimes people say look what the modernists have done you know and, yes. and all they I, mean yeah is, what's you know, the uh the, i am completely opposed to the era of the modernists i think it's from a papal um papal encyclical uh right. i'll look it up but yes i mean it is definitely used as a um as an epithet you know to sort of be contemporary secularism it's not yeah it's normally not discussed as a sort of aesthetic. Yeah, and modernism has its problems, right? But it, it, to my mind, it really identifies something that we can't just wish away. Like we can't, like if the world has broken apart to some degree, right? And like Christendom doesn't exist anymore and like all the, right? Like things are really broken up in a lot of ways. Modernism, it seems to me, is at least trying to say we can take something, um, like we can take something concrete and then abstract it like we rather than like postmodernism, which is kind of the opposite which is to sort of like take any old stupid thing and then say that it's meaningful right like mm -hmm. modernism kind of do goes the other way it sort of takes the shards and says oh let me let me take all of these things and show you like how we can like think about them in a different way or something so i'm sympathetic to it i'm very interested to see if somebody like this this fin de villiers can kind of move ahead with this idea um, by the way it is pius the 10th in his one of his papal encyclicals said i'm completely opposed to the era of the modernists uh, really? but, he, but yeah, even I that was that. not i mean it was not anathematizing all of modernism or everything that it conveys uh just yeah. that it, admitting that it has errors which i think is certainly a, an unobjectionable statement and one was one with which i would certainly agree yeah yeah for sure but in any case you know i like that this fin de villiers is not just saying you know what we need to do is like throw out the last 250 years or something right, right? far like, from it yeah yeah um so I think that there's something there. I think that like it goes along with this sort of his desire to like move forward, but in the right direction, you know, um, which is something that we all need. Can to I read a, a small excerpt that, that builds on this a little bit? Please. So um, the, the interviewer says, uh, well, let me, let me back up. He says, I'm aesthetic and artistic in some respects extremist because I look for the extreme, the very vibrant, the explosive in culture, because I think if you want to wake people up, then you have to look for the explosive energy. And it's very clear in vorticism. It's directly there as it is in Italian futurism as well, which was a similar movement. Yep. The interviewer says, do you try to siphon or reproduce that energy uh, in the present period due to a belief almost irrespective of where the energy was channeled at the time that there is value in unleashing it into modernity? Ben de Villiers says, I think that's a really great way of summing it up. You're really hitting the nail on the head. Some people disagree with me on this, but my belief is that we've hit a period of stagnation. I'm going to editorialize here, Andrew, and just say this, this reminds me of the Peter Thiel article where we talked so. about a lack of progress. Mm -hmm. uh, de Villiers continues, we're in the information age, but visually, physically, aesthetically, in the real world, we are in stasis. Culture has lost all will to actually, really shout something and be something in a very direct way. I mean, artists used to be seen as heroes, warriors, the warrior poet. You had these painters and sculptors who were there fighting to actually express and to be there and to say something about who we are in that period. I'm trying to, as you say, reincarnate to some degree that flame, that power, that vir virile energy, because I want to bring it into a period of darkness. 
I see this time as an aesthetic dark age. I like the image of the tank because it can, at speed, smash through things. Mm -hmm. I think we need to smash through where we are right now and get into new ground. This is what my show, Breakthrough, is all about. You must break through. We must go on. We must keep pushing forward. You must go on to get out of this stasis. So as you say, yeah. Andrew, uh, what he, he's a modernist, I think, because he admires the sort of the, the strength um, and not, 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 not shapeless brutality, but the sort of, um, you know, the brutal strength of, uh, maybe forcefulness is a better word, of the modern aesthetic. And he thinks that that is actually a healthy antidote to, antidote to what is actually postmodernism, which is this sort of period of stasis, this dark age, this era ultimately of meaninglessness. Uh, because of everything, if we pretend that everything has meaning, then nothing has meaning. And so there's really, there really is no, no flame, no power, no, no virile energy, as he says. And so he wants to sort of re resurrect that idea. And I think that was, um, I think that was the, one of the parts of the piece that made me think, oh yeah, like, I think he's onto something here. And I see when you see his pieces, there are some pictures of his pieces in this, um, this article, you see what he's getting at. These are, there are bold lines. There are bold characters, um, that are saying something more than, uh, more than, I don't know, more than nothing. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, yeah, we're in this anemic period in, in the West for sure. Um, we're just kind of stuck and, you know, the art, uh, if we can even call it that, that is produced is, I mean, even if it's something attractive, which a lot of it isn't, then it's just kind of something rehashed or, you know, it's like we've talked about before right. with films, right? I mean, it's just rebooted sequel, you know, whatever. It's just kind of, it's this decadent kind of repetition that leads to a kind of acedia, a kind of like hopelessness, a, just a kind of, well, what's the point of anything, right? And I think that he's drawing inspiration from the original modernists who had a little bit of a sense of that in their own day, right? And and they were, some of them were very naive because they thought, well, like they welcomed World War One because they thought, yeah. look, this is what this is just what we need, right? We need to just everything needs to just be kind of like violently shaken up. And, you know, and like our society needs to kind of like figure out how to like push through this, right? Now they were they were totally wrong about that because World War One destroyed their civilization. I mean, we're still like trying to figure out a hundred years later how to how to find it again to some degree. But maybe somebody like this Fen de Villiers can learn the lessons of the first modernists and say, okay, yes, we need that courage. We need that virility. We need that fighting spirit. We need to be proud of creation and like really embrace this idea that we need to like be moving forward in the right direction. But we're not cheering on warlords, right? We're not, you know, we're, we're not looking for, um, we're not looking to destroy. We're looking to build. Like yeah. destroying is not going to get us anywhere. Um, yeah, sometimes smashing through something so that you can sort of recreate from the pieces that you have. Well, you do that a little bit, but, um, and, 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 you know, he, he kind of, I think, I think he's thinking this way because he talks about how he doesn't want to be, he doesn't want to, to LARP, right? He doesn't, it's not just about role playing. It's not just about right. dressing up, um, which is like always a danger with art nowadays. Mm -hmm. Like, especially if you're trying to do art in some kind of with some kind of older inspiration in mind. Like, are you just like playing pretend? Right. Right. Um, and he says, no, like he wants to like pick up, um, where some of his heroes left off. And, and importantly, what he wants to do is, um, is do this culture stuff because he doesn't think that politics or like any of these other avenues that people want to go down to kind of face the future. He just doesn't really think there's anywhere to go there. So mm -hmm. the the only way to go is to kind of 
you know, recreate the art stuff. And I love this part. And maybe then I'll throw it to you because maybe you want to talk about the heroism stuff a little bit. But yeah. I love the part where he's talking about how um, politics is so is such a game, you know, and that's one of those old tropes that are, people have said, you know, like it's all just you know, selfishness and, and greed and all that kind of thing. But boy, howdy, like, I don't know about you, but the last couple of years in particular have definitely hammered home to me that, that that does seem to be, you know, the motivation of a lot of our leaders really does seem to be, you know, not so much service and sacrifice uh, and, or any kind of heroism, but just a kind of, you know, playing a game, self-service kind of thing. And he says, um, I consider politics today entirely just a charade. It's essentially just a game. He says, I know politicians in real life, they're actors. And isn't that right? Um, but he is, you know, maybe we all have a bit of an actor in us, but he is trying to be something authentic and do something authentic. And that really seems to come through in his words. Um, you know, last thing then to throw to you is, I, I think what he's looking for, what he's looking for art to do is to inspire people who do want to lead in government or in other institutions in our world. Um, that art has to kind of be the thing that inspires them to be courageous and self-sacrificing and to kind of pursue a heroic path because it's not going to, they're not going to have it otherwise. Like that's where those things come from. Um, and so, you know, he, uh, he really wants to stress, you know, this, this need for a rootedness in place that, and a love of place that then also comes with it, a certain desire to sacrifice for that place and for those people. So I'll leave it there and see if you have, you know, any, any places you want to, where you want to jump off? Well, I think that you, first of all, did a great job summarizing this, um, this guy. I mean, he, his aesthetic is certainly not for everyone and fans of, uh, of classical art, not click this interview and think, oh, wow, this is my new favorite sculptor because his pieces don't, um, they don't sort of arrest the soul, uh, as if, you know, they're a Da Vinci work or even a, I don't know, a Monet, like any of the classic painters, for example, or sculptors. Uh, I don't think that looking at his um, his sculpture known as Breakthrough, I don't think looking at that will give will, will inspire the same sentiments that looking at Michelangelo's David will inspire. But I still admire uh, I still admire the works, and I uh, even more so admire the thinking behind the works. And one of the things that I'm really impressed by uh, with him is that he 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 wants to stand uh, he wants to stand sort of opposed to the various directions of of art today. And what he views as the degradation of art, and this, as he as he put it, the stasis. Um, so yeah, I totally agree with everything you said, Andrew. Um, and as you rightly identified, uh, the the hero part of this interview especially caught my attention. We've talked about it a little bit, and you and I have talked about it even more privately, just on text threads and voice chats and whatever. But uh, I've been thinking a lot recently about heroes. Um, part of this is because of the piece that I wrote on the Uvalde massacre. Um, part of this is because of my love for for films and the way I see sort of films trending these days and the type of characters that are portrayed in the centerpiece of films. Part of it is uh, where we find ourselves in the the various um, the tumults of our political machinations in America and and who rises to the top. But I've been thinking about heroes and anti-heroes. And so what Fendevillier says in here, I thought really hit the nail on the head. Because what one thing I've been thinking about is the fact that going back to our even our ideas about fiction uh, at the beginning of this conversation today, Andrew, I've been thinking about how so many of our stories today focus on anti-heroes, right? We have the villain backstories, the, the Marvel movies. We have to understand why um, 
you know, why every villain is the way that he or she is. We have to understand what makes the Joker really tick. You know, why, why did the Joker become so bad? It's not enough that the Joker sort of stands for this sort of amorphous, faceless evil. We have to really understand like why, why we need to actually feel sorry for the Joker and how he ended up the way he did. Um, and then even, even in our politics, you know, the people who, who rise to the top uh, often rise to the top simply because either they're, they're the sort of, um, they're the best opposition to the opposition or they're the person who's most willing to sort of uh, uh, buck the trend and throw caution to the wind, uh, not in a not in a um, not in a virtuous way, but actually quite the opposite, in an unvirtuous way, right? Like the, this person will do whatever it takes to get the job, and then that's what we need, irrespective of uh, of the virtues. And so we've lost this idea, to at least some degree, I think, of of the virtues and the prerequisites that actually are required for a hero, and why. Um, why those things are important. And what de Villiers says is that he's, he talks about actually stories uh, in a similar way. And he says it better than I would, but he, uh, better, better than I could. But he says, uh, as you pointed out, Andrew, I believe that culture is paramount and the most important thing, I'm reading directly now, I think that everything happens through a cultural, emotional, and visceral prism in life. It's always the stories you're told and you're brought up with that, with that make the man. It's always about the nation and the story that runs the nation. But if those stories and if what you're being told and what you're living by are anti-heroic stories, if the entire system that you operate on is running on a weakness and a constant apology that you even exist, and the culture is so wet and useless that I'm not even bothered about politics at this point because the soul of man is dead. The soul of man is not vibrating at the frequency that I believe it should. That's a pretty powerful paragraph, Andrew. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I have to say, I think, he's, I think he's right. I mean, he's overstating things a little bit. The soul of man is not dead. The soul of man is actually the, the eternal principle of man, et cetera. But what he's, what he's saying is that this, this, sort of, this sort of zest for life, this drive for life is dead. And that's concerning because we, we, are just, we, we fill our times and we fill our heads with anti-heroic stories. We, we live in these political bureaucratic systems that, by the way, are in stasis, that are running on weakness and are in a state of constant apology that <laughs> even exist, have, have lost sight of the dignity of the human person, have no, uh, no concept of the intrinsic uh, value of every human life. Uh, and the culture is so wet and useless. Like when, when was the last time that we created a, a beautiful cultural byproduct of any sort, any sort whatsoever? Um, so so I, I think he's absolutely correct here. He says, as you pointed out, the, uh, you know, there are no heroes in politics. The politicians today are not heroic. They're actors or stage actors. And you know, that's fine for what they do, but I just have no interest in that because I want heroism. I want, I want to, to follow heroes. He says, the only way that you can cultivate true leaders and true heroes are by people who actually have a cultural route connected to the ground they stand on. Mm-hmm. Now, I do think this is actually an interesting point. Uh, he doesn't get into, he doesn't get into any of the sort of ethno-nationalism, but I do think that he, he sort of maybe... He, he flirts with some of these ideas in this paragraph here. I'll go on. He says, you have someone like Boris Johnson or Theresa May or any of these clowns. They don't care about the English. They don't care about England. They could be up and gone and go somewhere else. They're entirely global. They're not tied to the ground. So until people understand the fabric and the actual game of what the political system is, you're constantly caught in a shit show. You're constantly caught in a pantomime. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know his stance, for example, on you know, immigration policy in the UK. But here, what he's advocating for is... is uh, having some sort of rootedness or connectedness with, as he says, the ground on which you stand on. And that is, that does not have to be, I don't, and I can't speak for him. Uh, you know, I obviously don't know, uh, his heart or his soul, but, but what he says here is not, uh, it's not an ethno nationalist statement, um, yeah. in and of itself. Right. 
what he's saying is that the value of like rootedness is actually a really important value. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are people of the earth. From dust we come, and to dust we shall return. And that the, my word, I mean, Scripture's words, not 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 mine or his. But that's that's what he's talking about here. Is and and heroism is born of that rootedness. It's not born in this sort of amorphous, shapeless um, lack of belonging. It's actually born from the belonging itself. Um, yeah. And that's why the belonging itself actually matters because it's from that right. that heroism is born. It's from that 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 real stories are born. Yeah, a couple of thoughts to add about that. That's that's all. That's right, Zach. Um, I don't think he mentions um, one of my heroes, Roger Scruton, by name here. But this is a very big theme that runs through Scruton. The idea he talked about um, somewheres versus anywheres. You know, he, like he looked at Scruton looked at the modern managerial class, like the people who rule the world, as anywheres. They could be anywhere. It doesn't matter. Like they they it doesn't that like the rootedness in place doesn't matter. But being a somewhere, being somebody who is somewhere, is a necessary precondition for for virtue, really. Like because like you know you your your love of family, your love of place, right? I mean, again, it's it's concrete, not abstract. Like the the sort of the elites today. It, they're abstracting things. They're sort of taking things from the abstract and then trying to apply them, right? Rather than sort of living in reality. And then you can deduce certain abstract principles from the from the kind of tangible world that you inhabit, right? Um, so I think that that's a really important thing that he's getting at there. And that's a line of thought that runs from, certainly from ancient times, but in more modern times from, you know, from Edmund Burke to um, G.K. Chesterton to, you know, all kinds of great, all kinds of great thinkers. And it got me thinking, actually, because later in the piece, they talk about Dirty Harry a little bit, uh, the the cinematic Dirty yeah, Harry that, that vigilante character, part. which is really cool. And I want to I talk about that, but I want to bracket that for just a second, because another vigilante character that I think, in a sense, better embodies the rootedness in place is Bruce Wayne, Batman. Um, and I've been thinking about this because my son and I just recently watched Batman Begins and um, The Dark Knight. Great again. movie. The, first yep. of Christopher Nolan's uh, first two of his uh, Batman films. We haven't gotten around to uh, the third one yet, but we need to need to do that. But right. The thing, the motivating thing for Bruce Wayne is first of all, his family, because they were, his parents were killed. Right. But the second thing is Gotham city itself, right? Yeah. He Seeking loves Gotham city, city. Yeah. and his family did before him, his parents. Right. I mean, in that, for, in that Batman begins, you know, his father, tells him something like Gotham has been very good to us, son, right? You know, and so there's this sense of like the rootedness in Gotham. In both of those movies, the villains are agents of chaos who, in a sense, like don't see the virtue of the place, right? The In the first one, it's the Liam Neeson character, whose character name I forget, but right. I mean, like they basically this like, you know, this organization has decided that Gotham City is hopeless, like the the that it's too chaotic. And so the only thing you can do is just wipe it out. And Bruce Wayne slash Batman wants to fight against that, right? And the same in The Dark Knight. Like Joker is an agent of chaos and he's there to sort of continue to try to provide some order to this this chaotic, this chaotic place that he loves and believes that he ought to serve. So I think like that's that's this kind of like heroic thing that uh that Finn is getting at here. Like, and that that he wants to see represented artistically um in his sculptures, right? And maybe in it, you know, maybe Christopher Nolan and others do that in kind of a more popular idiom. But I have to say that's something I really admire. I really think that's right. Um, that gets that heroism, that rootedness in place, and that sort of creativity, that sort of sort of heroism, you know, that fearlessness moving forward kind of thing. 
that you know that you do see in a character like Dirty Harry. And I just I'll just quickly like read this one part that um, that stood out to me. You know, Dirty Harry is played by Clint Eastwood in these films from the seventies. They're really good. Um, and um, he says this: um, you have to look at the idea of the hero. Everything that Dirty Harry exhibits is exactly what the system today does not want. They do not want you to embody that sort of unapologetic, savage directness because then you are not a rule follower. You are instead someone who might question or do something that doesn't fit the prison cell of a cultural system they built around you. And man, don't we need art to do that kind of thing now? Yes. Like art is just about conformity now. It's like, it's just about kind of, it's it's just ma- it's mass produced, kind of um, safe, easy, stay within the lines. You know, if you don't, you'll get canceled, et cetera, et cetera, right? And Fenn seems to be saying, Dirty Harry is kind of a good a good example of a, yep. a, somebody that that we might want to look to because he's somebody who is virtuous, uh, but that virtue strangely like doesn't fit in the society that he yeah. lives in, and so he ends up kind of looking like a bit of a bad guy, even though he's really the good guy. Yeah, two quick things. Um, one, that this sort of like this sort of lack of rootedness is very closely parallel to this idea of flatness, which was, I think, the very first episode that you and I did, Andrew. This this complete frictionless, right? You said you said that art today is all the same. Today's music is all the same, right? If you if you listen to the top 40 songs on the Billboard top 40, I did this, I don't know, a couple months ago. I was like, these are all just, they sound the same. And they're all, by the way, terrible, but they all just sound the same. Uh, so our our visual art is all the same. Our music is all the same. Um, our technology is all the same. Uh, our journalism is all the same, right? Uh, our manufacturing uh, is all the same. You know how many how many um, how many small businesses have to survive by partnering with Amazon and selling their stuff through Amazon because that's the way you do it. You have to just do it the way that everyone else does it. So creativity really is dead. I think we are in this period of stasis, uh, and that is part and parcel of this whole this whole flatness um, flatness motif as well that we've talked about. Uh, the second thing is on this point about rootedness, uh, another, and on the point that we were talking about previously about sort of building these fictional universes, my other favorite series is this detective series, uh, called the Harry Bosch series by Michael Connelly turned into an Amazon series. And of course the series is not as good as the books, but there's 20 or so of these books. He's still writing them and they all take place in Los Angeles. And they're all about a Los Angeles police detective who just really loves his city and does not paper over the city. This isn't you know, Hollywood Boulevard, city of a million lights, you're going to go there and become a movie star. This is, he's a, he's a homicide detective, right? So you imagine the, the kind of gritty side of the city that you see. And yet he loves his city. And Bosch is a hero. He, he bucks the trends all the time. He flouts the rules. He goes, he, he, he operates in the gray. He disobeys his superiors constantly in pretty much every book. You know, he, he plays by his own rules, but he's, he really is a hero. And he's a hero with this deep sense of rootedness and obligation to his city. Uh, and so, I had never maybe exactly thought about it that way before precisely, but I really love that series and um, have just have loved diving into that universe with all those characters and especially with Harry Bosch as the main character. And I think that might be part of it because there's this, it, it's anchored at the very middle by this hero who has this very strong sense of place, uh, of duty, of obligation, and at the in the end of, of heroism. So um, so that's that's one of my favorite books here. You should check it out if you haven't read it before, Andrew. It's, it's just yeah, a fun, I don't know you know, falling asleep read. Yeah, very good. Uh, we're almost out of time, so I think we're ready for recommendations here. Unless you have any closing thoughts on uh, the interview with Fendevillier. No, I think I think that's good. I, I look forward to learning more about him and seeing some more of his art. 
Likewise. Yeah. Well, let's go with, with recommendations here. Uh, I just gave a recommendation of a kind, but I will follow it up with one more. My wife and I watched First Man the other day, the movie by Damien Chazelle. Damien Chazelle, uh, he hasn't had a whole lot of feature films, but he's rapidly becoming one of my favorite directors. Um, Andrew, and this, uh, this is not his, well, I guess his latest feature film installment. He's coming out with a new one called um, either Babylon or American Babylon. Uh, which looks, I saw the trailer, it looks, it looks like it's, it's going to be a wild ride, so I don't know if I'll see that one. But um, his first three have been very good. So Whiplash and then La La Land, very different, um, but have some parallels. And then First Man, which is very different from the first two. But they all, they all sort of ask the same question. And I was thinking through Whiplash and La La Land before I watched First Man. I was just thinking about how Damien Chazelle seems to be asking the question in every single one of his films so far. Um, the question is basically, at what cost? You know, what, what, what is the cost of greatness and is it worth it? Um, and you'll see what I mean when you watch these movies, but I think he's very good at answering this question. He's very good at, at, at the ambiguous ending as well, because you finish the movie and there's really no conclusion to that question, right? The question still sort of hangs there in the air as the credits roll. And you think to yourself, wow, was it worth it? What is the cost of greatness? Um, and so first man chronicles Neil Armstrong. Uh, from um, this is this is kind of a spoiler, but this is historical, so it's not really a spoiler. But from the death of his daughter Karen, uh, who died from cancer as a child, uh, through his entrance into the astronaut program, and eventually him um, walking on the moon and then returning. Uh, and it's a remarkable story. It's told with with pretty consistent historical accuracy. It's a period of history that I know a lot about because I love I love the space race and the space age. Um, and I found it very very good. It's one of my favorite spacefaring films that I've seen. So I would recommend that. Uh, I don't know why it took us so long to watch it, but we finally did and would definitely recommend uh, picking up a copy of that. So First Man, directed by Damien Chazelle, starring Ryan Gosling as Neil Armstrong. And Claire Foy not... as um, as Neil's wife, and she does a great job. I mean, Claire's an oh, yeah. Claire, Claire Foy's amazing. I forgot all about this movie. I have not seen it, yeah. but I will. Oh, definitely will check now. it out. Yeah, yeah, let me know what you think. I like La La Land, and... Uh... I will, yeah, I will look forward to checking that out. Do they, like, at the Air Force Academy, do they, like, you know, do they kind of, like, instill in you guys, like, the, the are these people, like, you know, Neil Armstrong type sort of held up as, as like, heroic figures? Um, I would say not, not as much as you might think. Um, okay. But here and there, I mean, and, and there's a, there's an astronautical engineering department at the Academy. Uh, so a lot of my friends were astro majors. A lot of my friends wanted to be astronauts. There's one person who was in the class ahead of me, 2011 graduate. Uh, she is now in the astronaut program. So if all goes according to plan, she could be on the first manned mission to Mars, I think, in the oh, late my. 2020s. So pretty wow. exciting. Yeah. I mean, um, remarkable, remarkable how much these people give to that. And that comes through in the movie itself, as you'll see. Mm. Uh, but I mean, just amazing achievements as well. Yeah. Well, Zach, my recommendation is uh, a, a movie review, actually. I am not going to see the movie Wakanda forever. I don't know if you're planning to see it. I did see Black oh, Panther and I liked it, but I'm pretty much done with the MCU. I got to tell you, I mean, I will Same. end up seeing, I will end up seeing some of them because my children still enjoy them and there may be some merits in some, some of the films that may be coming down if the If Taika Waititi directs another one, I'm in for that. Otherwise, I'm okay. Out. Okay. Yeah. Well, Wakanda Forever, you know, um, I, uh, my mind is now blanking, but the, God, gosh, um, Bozeman, Chadwick Bozeman, who played, uh, yes. who played Black Panther Black died. Panther, yeah. And so, you know, kind of a tough, uh, a tough thing to make a sequel without, without the main character from the first one, but they've done it. And, um, 
I didn't like the look, I have to admit, of what I saw in the trailers. And my concerns were confirmed when I read um, Armand White, who uh, is a, a movie critic. He writes, he's written books and he writes a lot for National Review. Um, he, he just absolutely torched the movie in a review called Wakanda Forever Exploits Commercial Politics. And I particularly appreciated his his problems that he articulated with Wakanda Forever because he himself is African-American and uh, Armand White is, and he is also a keen student of history. And he brings in some of the, some of the kind of historical problems that he, that he sees with the narrative that is, that is told in Wakanda Forever. And if I could just read a couple of, of lines that were really juicy ones from, from this, this just great takedown. Uh, he says, Wakanda Forever's nearly three-hour length attests to its intention to outdo mere entertainment. In its aim to be taken seriously, it uses glib racial feminist identity to indoctrinate audiences into cheering potential race war. Whoa. Wow. Um, I mean, I think coming from Armand White, that is really worth paying attention to. You know, like what? Marvel, yeah. Marvel really needs to be careful with the way that it's sort of casting you know, casting narratives, right? And um, just a, a second thing that he said that I thought was interesting was, you know, he 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 mentions um, how many Marvel fans have read the great serious black historians, Ivan Van Sertima's uh, They Came Before Columbus or John Henrik Clark's My Life in Search of Africa. Has any other social group ever had its history diminished to comic book trivia and then encouraged to take that insult as a compliment? The brainwashing phenomenon of Wakanda Forever promotes ignorance of history, not uplift, but culturally enslaved escapism. Wow. Again. That is savage. Wow. I mean, this dude is hitting hard. And is I this think, in National you know, Review? It's in National Review. I read it uh, okay. on their website uh, just, just okay. this morning. So, yeah, Armand White... I don't always agree with everything, uh, his take on every single movie that he reviews, sure. but uh, he is a very insightful guy, and I was... I must, I must confess, I was pretty intrigued by, by this review. Wow. But less likely to watch Wakanda Forever, obviously. Definitely much less likely to watch yeah. Wakanda Forever. Yeah. I almost want to see it now, given that he eviscerated it that, that devastatingly, though. So I don't know. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll check it out after reading the Armored White piece. It's awfully long. and uh, That I is think, a commitment. Think, That's true. Yeah. I don't I like his phrase, too, about the sort of bid to be, to be taken seriously. I think that's the case with many Marvel movies these days. Mm -hmm. um, and they almost, they're just sort of blissfully unaware of the fact that no one actually takes them seriously. Yeah. Like they're almost, they're almost constitutionally incapable of being taken seriously. And yet they try. But this is why I like Taika Waititi's take on it when he did Thor Ragnarok, because he was like, no one's going to take this seriously. So we might as well just make fun of it as much as we possibly can. Uh, yeah, it's, that's it's an interesting like a, take. You know, a big joke. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you should you should watch it again sometime, and with that take yeah. in mind, and see mm -hmm. see if it comes across the same way. Because that's how I take it. He's just like the MCU is a runaway train. No one's taking it seriously anymore. It can't even take itself seriously. So we might as well just put in all these ridiculous jokes and just have fun with it. So that's what he did, and it kind of worked. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, well, that's it I mean, for I think oh. yeah. Go ahead. Nope, Go ahead. that's Sorry. it. That's it. it. That's all. <laughs> you know, that's a, that's the last word about the MCU. Nothing more needs to be said. Okay, sounds good. That's it for this week's What a Week. 
Andrew, thanks again for joining me. It was a pleasure as always. We'll be back in two weeks. We are taking next week off for Thanksgiving. That's why we did the food theme misinformation this week. So enjoy the time with your families. Uh, enjoy the time eating turkey if that's your thing. Uh, I think we're going to do roast lamb with my father as we celebrate Thanksgiving. So I'm looking forward to that. Should be good. But enjoy lots of good food. Enjoy lots of good fellowship uh, and fun. We'll be back the following week for our next installment of What a Week. And until next time, God bless you. <laughs>